Welcome to Fundamentals of Canadian Law. I'm Matt Shepard. Many people were surprised in 2018 when a national pipeline project was effectively halted by the Supreme Court over something called the duty to consult Indigenous people. So it was doubly surprising when in October of last year, the Supreme Court made another decision that said there was not such a duty. These may seem like contradictory decisions, but they're not. And to help us understand, I'm joined by Hugo Chiquet, the developer and instructor of Law 202-702, Aboriginal Law, at the Certificate of Law from Queen's. We're going to talk about the duty to consult, how it plays out at different stages of the legislative process, and how the Supreme Court, while on its face maybe seeming to be contradicting itself, is actually following a very consistent set of ideas about the law. If you're not familiar with the duty to consult, you may want to listen to our podcast from last September about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which lays out more of the details and principles before you listen to this one. In this episode, we kind of jump right into it. This podcast is brought to you by the Queen's Certificate in Law, the only online certificate in law offered by a law faculty in Canada. You can find out more at takelaw.ca. So let's talk about the Miccosu First Nation. Sure. Uh, so the decision was definitely not uh, the way that the First Nation had intended it to go. And the Supreme Court um, unanimously decided that there was no, well, I shouldn't say that. So the, the, there was a preliminary issue, which was whether the Federal Court of Appeal uh, and the Federal Court at all um, should have been able to deal with this issue in any event, which the court unanimously decided was not the case. So they, they sort of unanimously said this was the wrong forum to bring this claim in anyway. But the on the important decision of whether there is a duty to consult, and the real question in this case was whether the duty to consult applies at the legislation-making stage. So just to give you the factual background to the case again, um, this arose in 2012 when the Conservative government then um, brought in some legislation, some major changes to environmental legislation, big, the biggest piece being the Environmental Assessment Act, as part of, an, of these two omnibus bills. And uh, so th- this was a huge piece of legislation that contained many, many items, and they all put them through at the same time. Uh, so there was very little opportunity to make uh, any kind of um, representations to the legislature at that, at that time, to the House of Commons. And so the Miccosukee Mixi- First Nations basically challenged that process on the basis that they should have been consulted because, of course, the changes to the legislation would affect their possibly affect their Aboriginal treaty rights, uh, including treaty rights to hunt and fish, uh, which would be covered by, you know, w- w- could possibly be affected by changes to the Environmental Assessment Act and the possible greater opportunities to um, have more development projects, etc. And so the question really was then, do, does the duty to consult apply at the legislation making stage? And you might think that it would because the duty, of course, as we saw, uh, we discussed in a previous podcast, is always on the crown. And the ministers of the crown who represent the crown in, in, in all of its actions are involved, of course, in drafting the legislation, at least at the conceptual stage. They're the ministers, they're the cabinet. And so that was the argument that the Miccosukee First Nation put forward was that really they should be, when they're drafting this legislation, they should have a duty to consult uh, any First Nations involved. Now, the court uh, said only, and only two of the judges, uh, Justice Abella, and she was joined in that judgment by Justice Martin, would have actually imposed a duty to consult at the stage of drafting the legislation. And the other judges all pretty much said that this would be an undue interference with the idea of the separation of powers. And so I imagine you probably have in another podcast also looked at that 
fundamental concept, which is that the the three branches of government, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative, are separate and have separate roles, and that, generally speaking, one branch shouldn't interfere in the, with the role of another branch. And so here, the, the judges felt that it would be an undue interference with the role of the legislative branch. And they also brought up uh, a few of the practical concerns that they had in terms of how this would play out. So one of the things they mentioned, probably not the most convincing, but is the fact that this would slow down the legislative process, uh, unduly, you know, slow down. So if, if every piece of legislation, so goes the argument anyway, has to be subject to consultation before it's enacted or before it's even put before the House of Commons, that this would create a, you know, this would make an already lengthy process into a, a, you know, it would grind it to a halt, basically. So is this a concern they're raising about all legislation or just kind of the sorts of legislation that go into drafting these these big omnibus bills when a bunch of things are crammed into one piece? So unfortunately, the the challenge couldn't be just to the process of doing omnibus bills, because that is a, a recognized possibility for governments. Uh, and, and it's no different in that sense than any other piece of legislation. You can put as many items in it as you want. Whether that's politically uh, acceptable or not is a different story. But legally speaking, there's really no difference with that process as opposed to just a single bill. And so the, the, the challenge really was on the basis of whether any, any legislation that might potentially affect um, Aboriginal treaty rights would then be subject to a duty to, so the Crown would then be subject to a duty to consult as part of that process. So the contention then is that uh, if you impose this on all legislation, it's going to slow down legislation, period. Yeah, so the, the concern would be, you know, that I- any legislation that might possibly have an adverse effect on Aboriginal treaty rights, and that would cover a large range of possible uh, legislation, would then be subject to a duty to consult and a consultation process that might uh, slow down the work of Parliament. Uh, and then they raised some other practical, more pr- other practical concerns that are perhaps more legitimate, such as the fact that it, even if, for example, the, the judges who argued that there wasn't a duty to consult said, well, even if Crown were to consult, there's no saying that the bill couldn't then be amended by Parliament after the fact uh, to remove the the product of the consultation. In other words, so we, you know, let's say the, the Crown consults and and um, comes to an agreement with the First Nation then, you know, Parliament would be free to, to amend the bill and get rid of any accommodations that were in the bill. So some of these concerns seem to have some merit to them. But on the whole, of course, the, the, the bottom line is that, you know, this is basically just a, a an argument which is not really based on empirical evidence. There's no evidence that this would, in fact, be the case that uh, this would slow down. The interesting sort of dichotomy here is that the, the the court basically made it very clear that even though ministers always play a role in representing the crown, in the legislative process, they are not uh, acting in their executive capacity. So when when a minister introduces a bill in, in the House of Commons or when they're drafting in the process of, of conceptualizing and drafting legislation, they're acting as part of the legislative process and not in their executive capacity. Now, the three uh, judges, Justice Garrett Katsanis in her judgment, and she was joined by Chief Justice Wagner and, uh, and um, I believe Justice Rowe, um, they also uh, noted that there might be a possibility, and they raised this very interesting possibility, that legislation might be challenged on the basis of the honor of the crown um, once it has been enacted, even before it's implemented, that it could be that if legislation is enacted in a way that disregards the duty to consult, in other words, the claims of possible First Nations or other Aboriginal peoples uh, in, in the process, that it could possibly be challenged under the Constitution because 
of the fact that the honor of the crown is an overarching principle and is always at play uh, in its um, in the crown's dealing with indigenous peoples. So it feels kind of like nobody's saying that the duty to consult isn't important, but when it's most appropriate seems to be what's kind of being continually debated here. Yeah, and one of the important things to remember about the duty to consult, and I know I, I mentioned this before, but I think it's critical to understand in order to make sense of these decisions, is that it applies even when rights are considered unproven in our legal system. So one of the big things is that, of course, any Aboriginal right, or for example, Aboriginal title, uh, which is a form of Aboriginal right that allows you to control land, has to be proven in court, as the Chilcotin people did uh, in the in the 2014 decision in Chilcotin, where they received then an, uh, a declaration from the court that they had Aboriginal title. But those cases are very few uh, and, and fairly rare because of the Im- immense amount of resources that it involves to uh, bring these cases to trial and, and have them validated by the courts. And so one of the things that happens is that the duty to consult actually applies much before that. It applies anytime there's a valid, there's a claim of an Aboriginal right or treaty right being infringed. And so one of the things that this decision does is it sort of forecloses the idea that you could you could have meaningful input into legislation at that stage because ultimately once legislation is passed, you currently the only way you could challenge it would be as an infringement under section 35. Now once if there's any implementing action by the crown, you could challenge that action with the duty to consult, you could say, well, before they impl- they implement this legislation, they would have to consult with us. But as far as challenging the legislation itself and stating that it's unconstitutional, your only avenue would be if you had a proven right, unless the um, this idea that the, f- the first group of judges put forward, that there could possibly be uh, something in the honor of the crown as an independent principle that would allow you to invalidate legislation on that basis um, before it's even implemented, right? And so that's where it, it, it becomes a problem because it, it puts Aboriginal groups in a position where they're having to expend a lot of resources in order to be able to challenge legislation. Because of course, it, it, the onus will be on them to bring these cases to court and to make sure that they challenge the legislation uh, and bring these novel claims to court, which may not be feasible for many, many groups. And they'd have to bring these novel claims, kind of, if you look at it as a process, at the very end of the process. Yeah, it would have to be once, you know, essentially once the legislation is is approved and enacted, uh, then they would be able to possibly bring a claim. According to some of the judges, according to other judges, it would even be, and and, and that seems to be the the majority opinion. It would it would be even beyond that. It would be when the crown is implementing the legislation. So you couldn't actually challenge the validity of the legislation itself you would have to wait until the Crown was doing something to implement it. And at that point, you could possibly bring a claim. So how is that more resource intensive than if if this decision had gone another way? Is it more resource intensive to do that at the implementation stage than it would be to do it as kind of the, at the draft legislation stage? Well, it depends. So one of the biggest criticisms of the decision is that it's all about who whose resources are being expended. Because, uh, of course, if it was part of the legislative process, there would be the Crown and the, and the, the legislative, uh, the, the House of Commons resources that would be uh, expended. But if you have to wait until the legislation is enacted, then it's it's the First Nations or the Aboriginal groups challenging the legislation who have to invest the resources in bringing the challenge to court. And so it, it really puts the onus on them as opposed to taking a proactive stance 
of saying to the Crown, you know, you need to consult before you enact this legislation to head off any possible challenges down the road. Now, of course, that may still be the best practice, and the court does recognize that. And in fact, in some provinces, it's become policy that um, governments will will consult uh, with uh, Indigenous groups before they they enact legislation. And also, there's a possibility where, um, and this has happened in several cases, where there's modern treaties, so where there's land claims agreements or, or modern treaties with the Crown. One of the provisions that might be inserted in those treaties is a uh, a requirement to consult on legislation that may affect any of the rights guaranteed under the treaty. Um, so that's one option that's open as well. Uh, but again, this has to be negotiated with the Crown as part of a, a modern treaty. But this effectively shuts the door on the idea that the government must consult at the legislative state. That's right. It, okay. it essentially insulates Parliament as an institution from the duty to consult, which is one of the biggest criticisms that Justice Bella had. Um, because in, in a very early decision, in the, the Sparrow decision, which is sort of the ground foundational decision in this area of law, the court had recognized that Parliament's sovereignty would be limited by uh, the duty to, or not the duty to consult, but by Aboriginal, by Section 35, the, the provision that guarantees Aboriginal and treaty rights. And uh, so, according to Justice Bella, anyway, this is sort of walking back from that and suggesting that Parliament is, is insulated from any operation of the duty to consult. It's right. only that the Crown is an executive. Uh, the crown is executive that's actually that actually owes the duty. So this happened in October of 2018. That's right. Yeah. And then earlier in 2018, there was another Supreme Court decision about uh, duty to consult that basically put a halt to the transnational pipeline. Are these decisions coherent from one to the next? Is the Supreme Court kind of acting consistently when it's when it's doing these things? I think it is, and it 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 it, it appears inconsistent because the results are very different. And unfortunately, uh, the way that these decisions get played in the media often uh, sort of can sometimes distort the real impact of the decision. So, in the Trans Mountain case, for example, um, it was very much viewed as an unconditional victory for the First Nations involved. The, the reality is that courts will interfere in the procedural aspects of the duty to consult, and they will suggest that, you know, one form of process might be better than another. But they generally will not interfere in the results. Uh, and and so one of the things that, that happens is that the decision might seem like it's, it's suggesting that there wasn't adequate consultation, but it generally will focus on the process of consultation. And once the, the Crown can fulfill that process, the actual outcome of the of the consultation, whether there's accommodation or not, is not really something that the courts are willing to become involved in. And similarly, here we see a very much a hands-off approach, in the same way that the that the par- that Parliament and legislators know what's best in terms of enacting legislation, and it's not for the courts to step in. So I think they're consistent in that the courts very much ensure that there is. A, a sort of a, a process in place to ensure that there will be some consultation, but they're very reluctant to interfere uh, in any significant way with the role either of the executive or the legislative when it comes to making the actual decisions in relation to consultation and accommodation. Right. And this most recent decision was made about three months ago. So, I mean, things do move slowly on yep. these fronts, but has there been anything, any other development since then? No, there's a number of cases that have referred to this decision and they're trickling up uh, in the court systems. But generally speaking, there hasn't been. Now, the one other big thing that I should mention, which is which is not mentioned in the decision, but it's crucially important, is that 
that decision is not in line with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, because there's an article of the Declaration, Article 23, that explicitly states that that Indigenous groups should be consulted before legislation affecting their rights is enacted, and, and uses the, the well-known phrase, free, prior, and informed consent. And so one of the things that is now happening is that we have Bill C-262, which is a bill which purports to recognize the declaration uh, as part of Canadian law. Now, the exact way in which that will happen is not very clear from the bill, unfortunately. But if uh, the declaration becomes recognized in Canadian law and gains greater weight, it could be that this line of jurisprudence would then become out of step with Canada's international commitments, because clearly there is the, the declaration itself requires pre-existing consultation and possibly even consent before legislation that would affect uh, the rights of Indigenous peoples is enacted. But does the word enacted give the government here a little wiggle room? Because enacted, I mean, can mean a variety of things. So if the duty to consult is supposed to be before the law is enacted, doesn't that also clear this kind of last stage? There, so there, there isn't, So, and I'm not using the exact language from the provision here, but there, there is uh, some ambiguity in, in what exactly is required. But certainly it would seem that it would be a much more, a process that would involve uh, the Indigenous peoples concerned in a much more active way than what the current, the Mixed Cree decision provides for in the legislative process at any rate. Um, so, of course, all this will have to be in, interpreted by the courts and, and how exactly it will impact the, the situation. But one of the interesting things about the, the, de- the decision from the majority is that it doesn't really refer to uh, the UN declaration. It doesn't really s- address the, the, the fact that this is a discrepancy. And so that's, um, that, that's something that may yet affect this whole area of law again, of course. Well, thank you very much, Hugo. Thank you. Thanks to Hugo Charquette. If you're interested in the relationships between Canada's Indigenous people and how they form part of Canada's tapestry of laws, you should check out Law 202-702, Aboriginal Law, at takelaw.ca. Fundamentals of Canadian Law is recorded at Queen's University, situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Our theme music is by Megan Hamilton, who is also a staff member here at Queen's Law. You can find out more about her music at meganhamiltonmusic.wordpress.com. Original illustrations for this podcast are by Valerie Desrochers. You can find her work at vderochers.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>